have you ever been homesick before? I remember the first uh, missions trip I went on. I went with a group to Cuba, and um, it was a two-week trip. And the first week was so busy. I mean, traveling and the ministry schedule was so packed from morning till late at night that I hardly had time to think. But as soon as the second week hit, and we had about a day and a half to just rest and get geared up for the next push, I started to feel like I really want to go home. <laughs> I had my wife and I had three kids at the time. Isabella was very, very young. And there was one day I just went back to, to the room I had. Um, I shared with somebody else. Thankfully, he was not there. And I just, I cried for about 30 minutes. I just wanted to go home. I just was ready, ready to be with my family. I was homesick. In, in a sense, there is, there, there's a whisper of that in every one of our hearts. Homesickness. In, in the heart of every human being that we are not home. What is the ultimate aim of the gospel for you and I? Some might suggest it is to be justified, as we've been talking throughout the book of Galatians, to be made righteous before God. Some would say it's for sinners to be made right with God. That is the ultimate aim of the gospel. But I would suggest it's not the ultimate aim. Some might say it's to go to heaven someday when we die. Like Ken, when he breathed his last breath here, he, his next breath was before the face of Christ in heaven. But I would suggest also that going to heaven is not God's ultimate aim for us in the gospel either. I believe the ultimate aim in the gospel is for you and I to be brought to God, is for God to bring us to himself. So justification is a means to an end. It is a means to that end. And heaven also is a means to an end. It is a means to be brought to God. In a sense, it is to be brought home. Jesus, in perhaps one of his most famous statements, one of the I am statements in the book of John, John 14, 6. When I say this, you're going to know it immediately. You could finish it for me. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to heaven but through me. Wait a second. That's not what it says, does it? It says, no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus says, I am the way to the Father. And by saying this, Jesus is saying our eternal destination is to be with the Father or to be brought to the Father. The Father wants a house full of children. In fact, as I thought about this message throughout the week, it made me think through John 14 to 16 a little differently. Because the first words of John 14 is Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled, right? In my father's house, there are many places. I'm going to prepare a place for you. So our eternal destination is to be brought to the father, not as naughty little children needed to be scolded by the father, but as Reed said last week, as mature sons, we're to be brought into the father's house as mature sons and daughters of God. That is the end goal of the gospel for you and I. 
One of the most beloved parables, the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus points this out very clearly. We have this child who doesn't want to live at home anymore. He's sick and tired of living under his dad's rule. He says, Dad, give me my half of the inheritance. I am out of here. And the, the apex or the, the, the height of the story is when the son comes to the end of himself. And what does he do? He comes back home to his father. He doesn't, he doesn't find his way somewhere else. He thinks he does, but then he ruins his life and comes back home to the father. And there is a massive homecoming party for the son. This morning in this text, this idea is worked out in the language of adoption. And what I found so amazing about this passage, these four verses, right? These were covered last week in a larger text. And I just wanted to press in a little bit more to it because what I found so fascinating and amazing is that all three persons of the Trinity are at work in your adoption. Christians have always believed that God is one, and yet there's three persons, right? There's one God and three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in this text, it shows that each one of the persons in the Trinity are working to bring us home to God. So this morning, I I want you to see from this passage how the Trinity works together for our adoption. But this text intends more than just for our minds to be informed, although it certainly intends for that. I want, I want you to see in the passage. If you can't see what I'm saying in the text, don't believe it. I'm serious. But if you do, you must believe it. But we want more than our minds to be informed. We want, we want our hearts to be inflamed. And I think this passage, that's an intention in this text, is for our hearts to be inflamed by this reality. We see the language of experience in these four verses. Verse 5 says that the purpose of what the Son does is that we might receive adoption as sons. To receive something brings us into contact with that thing we're receiving. If I'm receiving a Christmas gift, it's not just some gift that I don't have any clue about. It's in the closet somewhere. No, I have received it and opened it. I'm enjoying it. If I receive a kiss from my wife, she comes close, I come close, and I receive a kiss from her. This is talking about receiving adoption as sons. Something that we come into contact with, something we experience Verse 6, of course, talks about the Holy Spirit being sent into our hearts. And from there, the Holy Spirit crying out, Abba, Father. So, here's what I want to do. I want to jump in here. Here's what we see in this passage, right? First, we see the Father planned our adoption. Second, we see that the Son, Jesus Christ, has purchased our adoption. And third, we see that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, brings us the life of adoption. So let's jump into those one at a time. First, the Father planned our adoption. Verse 4, the first part, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. So when the fullness of time had come, in time, 
God was carrying out his plan. This, this communicates that there was a plan in the mind of God the Father. And this was part of a plan that the Father brought up, excuse me, thought up long ago to fill his house with children. Long ago. Such a long time ago. Now, it wasn't just a few days before Jesus came on the scene. We know that, right? It wasn't even just hundreds of years before Jesus came, like when Isaiah was prophesying 700 years prior to Christ of the coming Messiah, that God thought this up. Guys, it wasn't even in the garden when Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve blew it that God thought up this plan. It was further back than that. The Bible tells us it was forever ago. It was from all eternity that God came up with this plan to bring many children into his family. Here's what Ephesians chapter 1 says, verses 3 to 5. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in Christ, get this, before the foundation of the world. And then it goes on in verse 5 to say, he predestined, in love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons. The phrases before the foundation of the world and the word, excuse me, the phrase before the foundation of the world and the word predestined imply from all eternity, this was part of God's plan. Which means that if you believe in Jesus Christ, the Father has been thinking about you in terms of adoption for a really, really long time. Yesterday morning, we were sitting around the breakfast, or around the table for breakfast, and I was talking to my kids, and I, Alyssa was like, where's he going with this? I said, you guys believe in Jesus, right? And kind of went through the gospel. You believe that he died for your sins, rose again. And they were like, yeah, of course. I shouldn't say of course. They said yes. And I said, you know what then? God has loved you forever. Now, little kids, especially like seven-year-olds like Silas, 15 minutes is forever, right? Like for 15 minutes? No, for, for a long time, I said, before you were born, he loved you. They're like, he knew us before we were born? Wow. I said, yeah, even like a thousand years ago. I said, even before, the Bible says before the world was made, God loved you. And Silas said, that sounds kind of creepy. I was like, well, it wasn't exactly the response I was looking for, but that's not altogether wrong. There's something deeply mysterious and fearfully wonderful about this. God from all eternity planned your adoption in Christ. He's loved you for a really long time before time began. Now back to Galatians 4. The Message Bible paraphrases the first part of verse 4 this way. When the time arrived that was set by God the Father. When the fullness of time had come. When the time arrived that was set by God the Father. Or in other words, at just the right time. God's timing is never wrong. It's never off at all. Mine is often off, but God's is never off. At just the right time, 
God's timing. His plan is being worked out. I wonder if you've ever thought, why did God wait so long to send Jesus? Why did he wait thousands of years? Why didn't he, like, immediately after Adam and Eve fell, or maybe, like, when he was deciding to destroy the world through the flood, or at, at some other point in time, why didn't he send Jesus then? Well, we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure, but we know that God is not haphazard with his timing. He's not kind of willy-nilly shooting from the hip as he goes along. You know, when I grill steaks, you know, I'm like, eh, I think it's about time to flip. That's not the way God is with his timing and with his plan. Perfect timing. God's wisdom and purposes are perfect. And at just the right time, look at what he did. God sent forth his son. And when he sent forth his son, grace exploded on planet earth. It says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was the one full of grace and truth. Grace upon grace has come to us through Jesus Christ. When Christ came, Grace came. Grace was unloaded and exploded upon the earth. Remember the story in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus is born in Bethlehem and there's these unassuming shepherds out in a field and there is this host of angels, this army of angels, hundreds or maybe even thousands of them show up and rather than declaring war on on earth, they declare peace. That gives us a picture of God sent forth his son. This was major. This was cataclysmic. This was, this was the most important step in God's purposes and plans. The words sent forth communicate something deep and personal in the heart of God, sending out from himself. He sent forth his son. He did not casually send Jesus On an errand, he sent forth his son with all of his heart. Passionate love, he sent forth his son. With great motivation, personally and intentionally, God the Father sent the son. We see deep and powerful and precious motivation here. And of course, John 3.16 helps us out with this. For God... So loved the world. He didn't moderately love the world. He wasn't kind of loving the world. He so loved the world that he sent forth or that he gave his one and only son. God doesn't merely give a thing called grace. God the Father graciously gives us his son. He doesn't sprinkle down grace on people. He gives his son. 1 John 4, 9 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that through him we might live. God sent forth his son This was according to the eternal plan to fill his house with children. 
Now, there's another part to this, though. The son was also involved. We, we know this. We probably mostly focus on the work of Jesus, and rightly so. The son purchased our adoption. The father planted the son purchased it. Verses 4 and 5, the second part of verse 4 and 5 says this. It says that Jesus was sent. He was born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. From last week, we saw that we're no longer slaves, but sons, and we are to live as sons and not slaves. Amen. But how did that exchange take place? Clearly, we didn't make that happen. It was something that Jesus did. It was something that Jesus accomplished in order to bring us into the Father's family as sons and daughters, full-grown with full privileges as sons and daughters. Jesus came to purchase our adoption in these two verses by doing three things. It says Jesus became a man. The eternal Son of God became a man. It says that he lived a life of perfection for us. And it says that he died in our place to free us. Let's look at these one at a time, just phrase by phrase. Born of a woman. Speaks of the incarnation of the Son of God. Jesus Christ was, was and is eternally God. And yet there was a point in time when he became man. He took on our nature and was born of a woman just like you and I were. He came through the birth canal just like you and I, of a woman, of Mary, right? In fact, Hebrews 2.18 says he was made like us, like you and I, in every single way so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in making propitiation for our sins, in atoning for our sins. He had to be made like us. He had to be made like us. Only a man can atone for the sins of men. And only God can save us from the wrath of God. And so Christ, who is eternally God, had to become man. He didn't become less than God. He remained fully God and became fully human. Think of the humility of Christ. In this, it is absolutely stunning. Charles Wesley captures this well, captured this well, he's dead now, in his song, And Can It Be, when he said, He, speaking of Jesus, left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. He emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? He was born of woman. And he was also, it says, born under the law. He was born subject to the law, just like you and I. You and I are born required to keep God's law. The problem is we don't. We never do. Certainly not perfectly. but not Jesus. He never sinned. He was born under the law, subject to its demands, but he never sinned, not even 
once. Never had a bad attitude. Never told a white lie. None of this. He obeyed the law perfectly. He was born under the law and obeyed it perfectly. And here's the thing. He obeyed it perfectly, not for himself. For he did not need to provide righteousness for himself to God. He was perfectly righteous before. He obeyed perfectly for you and I. Because we are the ones that lack righteousness. We are the ones who have sinned grievously and fallen way short of the glory of God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. To fulfill it for all those who trust in him. Jesus was born under the law in order to fulfill the law for us so that we could be counted righteous through faith in him. And then the last, or the the next phrase, he did this to redeem those who were under the law. Only the perfect life and atoning death of the God-man has the purchasing power to redeem us. Only the perfect life and the atoning death of one who is both God and man has the power to purchase us from the threat of the law. And so Christ has done so. He rescued us from the law's threat of punishment and curse by becoming a curse for us. Remember from a few weeks ago, Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And then the last part of verse five says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. See those two words, so that? Speaks of his purpose. Purpose, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That we might be called sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ. Oh my goodness, Jesus has paid it all, hasn't he? All to him we owe. We don't bring him any, we don't bring to God anything to commend ourselves. Jesus has paid it all. And the only way for us to receive this is simply through believing. So far we have seen that the plan to adopt from the father is eternal and perfect. And in time he sent his son. We see that Jesus accomplished the legal action required for adoption. And I thought about it this week. I mean, in a sense, we see that in even in our world, in the adoption of little children, maybe in particular overseas adoptions, when parents plan to adopt, right? They plan and they They think through and they go through the process of the dossier and all the paperwork and all of that. And then they choose a child and then they go through the legal requirements of obtaining the the rights to adopt that child. But there's one thing left and the Holy Spirit is active in working this out. He brings us the life and experience of adoption. And this is what I think is often missing in our life and experience is the life and experience of what it means and the joy and wonder. Oh my goodness, I am a child of God. Instead of, well, of course I am. Yes, of course. 
No, no, no. Oh my goodness. I am a child of God. Verse six shows us this. And because you are sons, because you are sons and daughters, right? Because we are children, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Notice, it doesn't say the Spirit whispers, Abba, Father, or helps us to think about God as Abba, Father, or mumble, or even say, or even recite, Abba, Father. No, no, no. From within our hearts, the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. Cries. We see almost the same words, certainly the same idea in Romans chapter 8 when Paul says, you did not receive a spirit of slavery again to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons. And Paul here in, in Romans 8 says, by whom you cry out, Abba, Father. You see that? We cry, the Spirit cries. When we cry, it's the Spirit crying. When the Spirit cries, it's us crying. We cry, Abba, Father. He's crying, Abba, Father, from within our hearts. This is a cry of intense joy and love. Like a child who hasn't seen mom or dad for a while, and runs to them. Oh, daddy. Oh, mommy. How you doing? It's so good to see you. This is a, a cry of intense joy, of intense love and deeply intimate. And this is where we get uncomfortable, intimate with God. There, there's something right about, we don't want to be presumptuous, right? God is holy and righteous. And there's... Unless we understand this aright, there seems to be something strange about us coming to him and calling him something as intimate as daddy or papa. Nevertheless, it's here. It's right there. The Spirit's been sent into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Abba. The smallest child can say, Abba. They may not be able to say father, but they can say Abba. This is the very opposite of stoic, distant, and remote. Jesus, when he taught us to pray, and I grew up, I, I knew this prayer from a very young age. Jesus taught us to pray, our father in heaven. And in our culture, I suppose father's kind of a formal way of talking about our dads. So I grew up thinking, this is kind of a formal way of addressing my, 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 my father God in heaven. But what Jesus is doing is he's bringing us into the fellowship with the father and saying, when you pray, pray this way, father, Abba, father. It has to be pointed out that it is the father himself who sends the Spirit into our hearts. 
Do you guys see that here? It's the Father who sends the Spirit. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It is the Father Himself who desires for you and I to have this exhilarating experience and life in the Spirit. Not of a distant, remote Father who looks down from His throne and gives the nod or the disapproval from time to time, but a father who is very dear and very close and wants us to to relate with him as such. When you are moved in your heart to address the father in this way, you know what it does? It manifests the presence of God, the spirit within you. And when you shy away from this or even find it like, I don't know about that. It shows something that God the Father wants to overcome in your heart and assure you that he is a father who can be approached in this way. I remember reading about Martin Luther and uh, at one time before he had his epiphany about the gospel, when asked about whether or not he loved God, he said, love God, I hate God. He saw God as a, supremely as a judge. And he knew himself to be a sinner. And yet when he came to realize that God is a loving father like this, everything changed. He felt like he walked through the doors of paradise I think it's also important to note that Abba is an Aramaic word only used by the, in, in, this pa- in this passage and Romans 8 and one other place. And Paul does this on purpose. This letter written to Gentiles, the book of Romans is written to largely Gentiles. And then to plop one Aramaic word in there, it's like, what is that all about? Because the only other place this is used in all the scripture is when Jesus addresses the Father in this way. Abba, Father. To Mark 14, verse 36. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night before he's to be crucified, and he is agonizing over what he faces, and he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. If it's possible, let this cup pass for me, yet not my will, but your will be done. But he addressed him as Abba, Father. Paul plops this word in here intentionally. You might say the Holy Spirit, superintending and inspiring Paul, plops this word in intentionally. And Paul is saying the Spirit cries the very same words as the eternal Son of God demonstrating as intimately and visually as he possibly can that we are welcomed in the very same relationship, to share in the very same relationship with the Father that the Son himself has always enjoyed for eternity. This is stunning, absolutely breathtaking. Oh my goodness. For all eternity, the Father and the Son have loved each other perfectly. And we are being invited and welcomed and 
beckoned into this exhilarating life through the Spirit. The Spirit reveals the Father who did not withhold his one and only Son from us so that you and I may look up into his loving heart and see how boundlessly he loves us. Martin Luther said, to know God as Abba would warm our hearts, setting them aglow with thankfulness. Author J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, wrote this. If you want to know how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. This is what the Holy Spirit was sent into our hearts to communicate to us. We are sons and daughters of God. I think of 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love, or I think the New American Standard says, behold, or what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And then it says, and so we are. You better believe it. You know that? It'll change your outlook on life about everything if you know your father in this way. Now, if that statement that I just read from J.I. Packer, if that seems to describe you, please do not be offended. Don't, Don't get offended by that. The Holy Spirit wants to fill you today with this very reality of God being your Abba Father. So adoption was planned by the Father. It was accomplished by the Son, Jesus. And it has been made, it has been applied, you might say. We've been brought into the, we are brought into the life and experience through the Holy Spirit. The Father wants a house full of children that he can lavish his love upon. The son was sent to accomplish the father's plan perfectly, to redeem perfectly his children. And the spirit was sent to give the living reality and the foretaste of what eternity will be like, which will be, we will be in the father's house forever. And I love that Jonathan Edwards had this sermon called Heaven is a World of Love. We will be in the Father's house forever and it will be a house full of love. And so if we are invited into that now to get a foretaste of what eternity will be like, how how should we respond? I I have just, just a few quick words of exhortation. 
on how we ought to respond to this. The first is to stop running from God the Father. Stop running from him. Stop resisting him. When I read the words in verse 5, that after all that Jesus has done, the purpose was so that you and I might receive adoption as sons. Receiving is kind of a passive verb, it is. But we do have a part in receiving. We can't make adoption happen. But if the gift is offered to us, we can receive it or we can resist it. If all of this is offered to us through Jesus and, and, and it, is, it, is, it is held out to us, Jesus has purchased this for you, this wonderful life in the Holy Spirit whereby you can know God as your Father in this deep and passionate and joyful and intimate way. It's offered to you. Anything other than yes, I fear is resisting it and is turning your back and going the other way from the Father. Stop doing that. Don't do that. On, you might say, well, how do, how, do I, how do I receive? Well, here's what we do. On the basis of Christ's redeeming work alone, by faith, we run into the arms of God, our Father. We look at what Christ has done. We understand that it was for the purpose that I might be brought to the Father and we, we by faith, run to him. Like Martin Luther said, when I realized God was a loving father, oh, I don't know that he said this, but he ran to him. He wasn't afraid of him any longer, not in a sinful way anyways. He wasn't, he didn't hate him any longer, thank God. He loved him. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. And so we stop running from him. We turn to him. We love him and we run toward him. Second, the second thing I think we ought to do is we need to start thinking of God as our father in this way. If you have put your trust and faith in Christ alone, then John chapter 1 says you have the right by God's grace to be called a child of God. And so we ought to start thinking of God in these terms that he is my Abba who loves me with all of his heart that loves me from all eternity. Remember, I I think I showed this a few weeks ago. In, In the prayer in John 17, Jesus said, you have loved them some of his disciples who were with him, you've loved them just as you have loved me. You guys, that, take, that is amazing. (laughs) So we start thinking of God in this way, as our Father, we look up, as it were, into the heart of God and we see His inexhaustible love for us in Christ and we cry out, we cry this out, Abba, Father. 
we open our lips and we say, Abba, Father. That's what the Spirit is crying from your heart. Number three, we live, this is just last week's message. I'm just going to reiterate it in one statement. We live as beloved sons and daughters, full heirs of the full inheritance. I get that from verse seven. I mean, Reed taught this last week, but verse seven starts with the word so. I think some translation, I think, I think that, I can't remember, might've been the New American, says, therefore. Anytime you see therefore in the Bible, we always look back at what was just said. Or if we see the word so, we look back at what was just said. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we look back at all that has been said. And in light of all of that, you are no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer enslaved to living under a legalistic or moralistic code of conduct. You are now a son and daughter of God. And so live as one. Taking into account all that's been said, you and I are beckoned in humble courage to live as sons and daughters, to live with the dignity and nobility of a son and daughter of God, to live with the courage of a son and daughter of God, to live with the grace of a son and daughter of a gracious father. And here's the thing, knowing, knowing that all three persons of the Trinity have perfectly conspired together in harmony to bring you into the father's family as a mature child set to inherit the full family fortune. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness. I thank you that you have done all of this. All we can redo is all we can do is receive it by faith. Receive adoption. Live in the light of what you've done as live as sons and not as slaves anymore. And Father, I pray right now. I just want everyone here, if you could just turn your attention to the Father and what he has accomplished through his Son to bring you to himself. Father, I just pray right now for your Spirit to come upon each one here in the name of Jesus. Based on what Christ has accomplished, you have poured your Spirit into our hearts so that we may cry, Abba, Father. And I pray, Lord, that there would, be, there would be a cry from our hearts, Abba, Father, this morning. That as we leave, we would know that this would, this would begin to inform our lives. It begin to, it'd begin to inform our idea of the, what the future looks like. God, that we would have great courage as we leave here this morning knowing that we are sons and daughters of the living God whose plans are perfect, whose ways are unfailing and whose purposes cannot be thwarted. In Jesus' name.